Welcome to the Unbranded Podcast with Misty Loves You, where we have interesting conversations with interesting people and learn about unconventional ways to live our best lives. I'm your host, Susie Dean. I'm a former teacher, mother in her MILF era, and wife. I have the incredible experience now of exploring topics and ways of living that I've always been curious about. The conversations on this pod are always relaxed, authentic, and might just teach you a thing or two. I promise that every episode will leave you with a deeper sense of self and understanding for those who are different from you. So get comfy cozy, grab a drink of your choice, and let's have some fun together. Hi, my precious angels. Today we are joined by Sarah Hoffman. She's the CEO and co-founder of Maker Wine, which is a canned wine company that aims to not only deliver pure, small batch quality wines, but also highlight BIPOC, LGBTQIA+, and female winemakers. I fell in love with this company months ago and discovered them and fell in love with them because of this exact mission. I not only love supporting small businesses, but also small businesses that were created by women and also small businesses with a passion and a mission to highlight marginalized populations of people. Today, we have fun chatting about wine, wine etiquette, and of course, wine misconceptions, but also the journey to building a business, high-class sports, and some very highly legal beer brewing Sarah did back in the day. You're in for some major education when it comes to wine, and I have a feeling that you might just have a new small biz to support. And you guys, I have a sweet discount code for Maker Wines. I'll leave it in the show notes. I'll post it on my Instagram on the launch day. If you don't see it, feel free to DM me. I would love for you guys to not only try this wine, but get a fat discount. Welcome to the Unbranded Podcast, Sarah. Before we start talking about wines and growing a business, who are you? And then I want to talk about your childhood, just for fun. Yeah, definitely. I'm Sarah Hoffman. I am the co-founder and CEO of Maker. We partner with small producers to can their wines. Um, I grew up in the Bay Area, in California, back where I live now. Um, My parents are both doctors. They both own their own small businesses, which I always really looked up to. Uh, I was a tennis player growing up, so played competitive junior tennis. That was really my whole life. Traveled every weekend. Uh, Also definitely, you know, a quiet, shy kid who loved to read a lot. (laughs) Okay. So that was going to be my next question. Have you read um, Carrie Soto is Back by Taylor Jenkins Reid? I haven't. Have you read any Taylor Jenkins Reid books? Uh-uh. Have you heard of Daisy Jones and the Six? Uh-uh. Oh, my God. Well, I don't want to push it on you because I hate when people push books on me. But Taylor Je- Jenkins Reid is a great fiction author. And I just she's she's one of those authors where, like, you can sit down and read a book by her that you know nothing about and have, like, no care about the subject area. And then you end up being very invested in it. And the reason that I say this is because one of her books is called Carrie Soto is Back. And it's all about this tennis player who goes into retirement. And then this young girl is about to break all of her records. So she goes out of retirement and starts competing again. And I know nothing about tennis. I played volleyball. So I know that there are like some parallels. Um, But other than that, also, I know that you have to be super quiet in the stands if you're at a tennis match. Um, but 
I was riveted and I I had no idea what was going on and suddenly I was like very much into all of these you know tournaments that she was into and how she was tra- anyway since you have yeah. a background in tennis it might I do it's a very unique fun read. yeah I do it's a very unique sport I feel like everyone I know from that world and that time uh, I think unlike a lot of other sports it's very individual um and you know a lot of internal pressure and it's a very mental game too so beyond um you know needing to to train physically it's pressure is on very specific points and I think it's something that like definitely taught me you know how to work hard how to rely on myself how to have confidence so it's it's definitely something that is a big part of who I am even though I don't play much anymore well, I also think that it's so valuable for like young people to learn at least one like preppy upper class sport. <laughs> Golf, tennis, lacrosse, all the anything to do with horses, I feel like just sets you up for like success later in life, just having that knowledge. And then on top of that, now you do all this stuff with wine. So I feel like you are someone who could definitely impress at a high level fancy so higher socio demographic gala or party well it's funny because maybe maybe on the surface but I definitely always love to shake things up in those worlds too so like my favorite thing to do would be to go to a high-end tasting and you know yeah surprise everyone by talking about cans or you know kind of maybe poke fun at the people that are taking themselves too seriously so uh <laughs> oh my gosh I'm actually really excited to I like to, I'm I'm really excited to get into that because I do have a few questions around specifically wine tasting. Do you know how who um Virginia Wolf is? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I went to one of her wine tastings on Palm Amazing. Beach and I didn't know anything about wine, but everyone else around me was like very clearly like old money Palm Beachers and um I want to talk about that with you cuz it made wine so so intimidating at the time. But going back so you are the founder and CEO. Um, so proud of you. How cool <laughs> to have those titles associated with your name. You have a really interesting story behind Maker Wine and how you came to the idea to create it and what it stands for and, and launching it. So I want to know your the birth story of Maker Wine. It's... Similar to how you said you felt intimidated at that party, I think that is definitely my that, that was definitely my attitude towards wine at the beginning of this journey. And you know, I think throughout my life, I've definitely always been attracted to craft products and to makers across a lot of different areas. So chefs, um, brewers, you know, really getting to know how something was made how culture impacts food and drink, um, getting to know the why behind food and how food really brings people together. And I think wine was sort of this black box to me because of how it's described um, and how wine can sometimes make you feel, you know, dumb when you're at the store trying to figure out which wine to pick out. And uh, living in California um, before business school, I started to visit wineries all around uh, 90% of domestic wineries or maybe even more um, 
or nine percent of wine you know produces is in California and getting to visit all these small producers and learn their stories and see that behind wine are these like farmers and artists and independent makers I definitely thought you know why isn't wine about this why isn't wine highlighting these people and maker really started as a fun side hustle project I'd had a lot of interesting um side hustles in food and bev I used to host a supper club in my apartment which is <laughs> highly illegal <laughs> yeah and I'd brew beer for that and like talk about you know um local makers and stories behind the the food and and beverages that we were serving so it was just a, a you tell me you shared brewed beer <laughs> did you yeah. brew the beer I did. I would highlight local brewer, uh, craft brewers beer, and then I'd also usually make at least one beer for the dinners. Um, again, highly illegal. I don't think you're supposed to serve people your own home brewed beer. But <laughs> that is so cool, though, that you actually not only were you interested in it, but you got hands on. You got into the craft, the yeah. craft world, craft beer, craft wine, the food. That's so cool. Yeah, I grew up wanting to be a scientist, actually. You know, my, I said my parents are both doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was a neuroscience and psych um, concentration uh, in college. And uh, brewing is this really interesting intersection of science and, you know, quantitative um, uh, formula, really, and art and getting to put something together that you know, tastes wonderful or reminds you of a memory or a person. Uh, and, you know, I think my um, skill set has really been in kind of like marrying those two and being really sort of equally a left brain and right brain person. So from what I recall from when we first had our chat about this, you were, was there, there was a moment in a store in a wine aisle with one of your friends who you also now work with. So Kendra is one of my best friends and um, my co-founder in this journey. I met her at business school at Stanford. Um, and, you know, yeah, we really we really embarked on this journey together. And we, yeah, had visited all of these small producers, met these amazing people. And then when we'd be at the store, we wouldn't see wines from any of them. And that's the big question. It's like, why are the best wines from the most authentic people not showing up on store shelves? And when we got into that more and learned more about it, it turns out that, you know, the wine industry, the way it's set up, makes it hard for independent producers to get shelf space. And, you know, with my background, um, you know, my my professional background had been in digital marketing. And you know, really the wine industry at that point had not realized its potential online. And so could we work with some of these producers and help them help sell their products directly to consumers online and really bypass that that shelf, um, you know, in general. And so that was really the, the beginnings of the company. And I think it really, you know... Um, it really spoke to our strengths and our backgrounds and 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 what we love, which is storytelling. And yeah, so really what our company is is storytelling. We find amazing winemakers and we just get to tell their stories and make their product fun and really easy to understand and purchase. 
I'm so grateful for that because the mission, it's not, it's obvious that the mission that the, of the company that you have now is the mission that you started with and what inspired this all. I want to get really granular. So you're in the supermarket or you're, or you're with Kendra and you're talking about this stuff and what's important to you. And you're like, let's change this. What does it look like after that? Because for me, I have no idea how I would begin <laughs> to start a business. And it's, I, I think I recall you launched pretty quickly. I think it was in like 2019, 2018. You, you kind of, you like really went in there and got the ball rolling. What does it take to start a business? Um, and spe- just to be specific in the wine industry like this, especially with canned wines, like that wasn't even really super tapped into at the time, right? Yeah, no, and I think we were we were really fortunate in that we we met at business school at Stanford, and so we were in this wonderful course um, that really helps early entrepreneurs, you know, think about these things and think about solution finding and think about interviewing customers on a problem or a need. And so we, you know, really started with that. We started with interviewing um, both lots of wine drinkers and. Uh, going to all these wineries and talking to these winemakers about their pain points, their problems, their needs, and how we could help. And so we had hours and hours of recordings of, of both the wine industry side and on the wine drinker side. And like these, you know, themes really started to bubble up and come together. And um, I think that's the number one thing you need in starting a company is that a deep problem um that you know you can solve and and that you're creating a product that has a purpose and that solves problems and one that really needs to be in the world uh, i know that's kind of vague but uh you know and and beyond that i think it's it's just taking baby steps you know it's um the hardest part is just putting it out there that you're trying something new and uh and really like just taking those small concrete steps every day to to get towards that product launch. And definitely our first, our first actual wine launch was, you know, not perfect. We ended up, I think, releasing our first three wines in December, which is sort of an odd time to launch a canned wine business. And, you know, our boxes took months longer than we possibly could have thought. Our first version of our website was, you know, embarrassing now to think back on. (laughs) Um, But yeah, we. It's also amazing how quickly you can work. Um, you know, when you have a small team and you're super passionate about it. I I love that the company is still a small company. Can you introduce us? I know they're not here, but can you introduce us? Um, who are like the main faces of your team of Maker Wine? Yeah. Well, well first I want to say we have a wonderful, um, you know, huge part time and contract team as well. So don't want to. Uh, discount them at all they're they're what makes maker run too um but we have we're a seven person team and we're spread out all over the u.s so we we launched um in the beginning of the pandemic and which you know had a whole host of problems and stories attached to it but we are yeah we're a remote team we're small Uh, my two co-founders are kendra and zoe Zoe manages, like she's our COO. She manages all of the production, fulfillment, 
like operations, making things happen, getting the wine into cans, making sure it's wonderful, sourcing. Uh, and Kendra, you know, leads our sales and IR and she's out in the world, you know, closing our first wholesale accounts, um, partnerships, you know, really being, uh, you know, that that face of maker to the external world. And then I really focus on our e-commerce and club experience and, you know, growing our our online presence and really the storytelling and marketing pieces. Um, also have a wonderful marketing manager, Emily, who um, helps on the content and marketing side, uh, wonderful wholesale lead, Brittany, um, and our developer, Gus, who makes all of the like incredible, um, you know, products come to life online. I want to finally start building our head of customer support, Catrice. <laughs> yeah, and she is really like the face, like the face of our customer experience. Um, and, you know, I think what Maker is uniquely good at, as you pointed out, is just creating experience and, you know, customer love and making sure that every touch point with us feels really important. And that's really like her strategy and, and what she's defined. So really small team, but we all do very distinctly different things and we really own our own lanes. Um, and that's what kind of makes it fun. I learn from my team every day. They're better than me at every, you know, at, at their functions. And that's so cool to get to learn from A plus people. Yeah. So just for anyone listening that has um, a desire to start a business of their own in general, any kind. I, first of all, I love that attitude that you have about your team. Like they're better than me at everything because just I'm sure everyone on that team has that attitude about everyone else on the team. And that's just going to evolve or continue to evolve and develop a foundation of such a beautiful team environment where you are consistently learning from each other, teaching each other. And I think that that mindset is super important in not only your personal growth as someone who works in a business, but that is ultimately going to lead to the success and growth of your business and the development of a very positive, beautiful, successful work culture. So I really appreciate that you have that mindset. But I also wanted to ask for anybody who is thinking about starting their own business, you mentioned you learn so much from everyone else on your team. Did you have any mentors along the way that helped you launch this? Or was it purely you guys in your business course, learning from your business courses and then figuring out it, figuring it out along the way? Yeah, no, I have so, so many mentors. And that's also my advice to people that want to start a business is, you know, um, find amazing mentors and also just find people that you know, are one or two stages ahead of you and where you want to be and, you know, and, and talk to them and learn from them. Like, you know, every, uh, there are so many problems that have been that you're thinking about that other people are thinking about too. And, you know, really getting their advice is so key. You know, I had two managers in my career, um, before maker that, that were incredible and that have started businesses of their own now. And talking to them, you know, every single time I, I do, I, I come away with something. And, um, 
yeah, I, I really think learning from other founders is is key. When you were entering the wine industry, also on the same on the same line of people that want to start their own business, what what challenges did you face? If you could like say one of the biggest challenges that you saw over and over again with launching a canned wine business, mm-hmm. what what were they? And then how did you overcome them? What was the mindset behind overcoming them? Yeah, so, I mean, so many. I'm just trying to think of all the, the categories. Yeah, I know. <laughs> One I is, know. is definitely everyone in the industry that we spoke to before we started the company, you know, told us not to do it. <laughs> I would say that, um, you know, people with in an industry can be jaded. They know all the problems already. I think when you come from outside of an industry, you're still, you know, sort of naively optimistic and come in with like a lot of exciting ideas and dreams. And so whenever, whenever, you know, young entrepreneurs talk to me that, about entering wine, I always say like, yes, do it. You're going to have so many people that tell you um, the reasons why you shouldn't. But, you know, I hope you have the conviction to know that you can and it's the best thing I've ever done. Um, so I think even just pushing those comments and thoughts away as you're in the beginning of this like is is a big challenge when we started maker cans were less accepted in wine than they are today um you know obviously there's still bias against cans but i think people especially because of like the hard seltzer era and um you know just new generations of drinkers like kind of understand the utility and convenience of of cans and are more used to seeing those products in cans but even just a couple of years ago, um, it was it was pretty new. And so especially like advertising or like it's you have to overcome this hurdle of people thinking that the the wine in cans is automatically going to be crappy. But that's also sort of the fun challenge. And I, I like to say, you know, yeah, a lot of a lot of wine in cans is crappy. And yeah. <laughs> so it's it's about giving, you know, it's about um, giving them it's about letting people try your product and see for themselves. And that's what's been kind of the magic of this. And and also, you know, starting during the pandemic, we did a lot of virtual tastings. And it was so cool to get to literally watch someone's first sip of Maker um, because often their company, you know, we worked with uh, a company and they bought these packs for their team. Um, they would, the, the employee would, you know, get this box, open it, do the tasting, expect to hate it. And you literally would just see on their face. And and Kendra and I were leading a lot of these tastings as the founders. And it was sort of like rapid fire, you know, customer feedback and customer interviews. And you'd see like what wines are really resonating. You'd see that like magic moment when they think like, oh, this is really good. And oh, this is by this producer. And they have this interesting story and they're you know, they're a, they're a startup winery too, and I want to go join their club or I want to check out their bottles. Um, it was just, I don't know, it's so special. And in fact, now that we're a bigger company, it's a lot harder to to do that. And it's one of my favorite things to do. And so, you know, I'm really trying to bring that, that back by, you know, yeah, being in our Instagram DMs, um, doing Zoom calls with our customers, some of our best customers to see what features they want in the can club 
And I think that for any business, being really close to like who is actually enjoying your product and consuming your product. I mean, I have Maker. Um, Maker is my drink of choice. It's yeah. the most wonderful way, I think, to get to try cool craft wines from amazing people. So if you're not passionate and excited about your product, like no one's going to be. <laughs> oh, 100,000%. And when speaking of the the stories of the makers of each can that someone might receive, like at that, at that company that was doing the wine tasting, I want to explore how how intricate you guys get with these cans because when I first received my first box I was like oh my gosh these cans are just so cute they look really good on an Instagram feed but it's so much more than that than than what the can looks like it's not just for fun and for PR or marketing or I don't know the terms and there is um, a significant amount of research and emotion and development that goes into the story of the individual can. Can you explain what features you include intentionally on each of these cans? Yeah, I mean, so you're right. It's we get to know the winemakers over the course of, you know, at least a year because we work with the winemakers from the point of them at harvest, really. And, you know, are through that whole process with them. And um, so, yeah, we get to know them. We have interviews with them. We go visit the winery or the property. We're often there um, at the canning day itself. And so by the end of that process, in the canning itself, there's a we have a canning line that actually hooks up to the tank at the winery. We usually have a lot of the team there. And we're sitting, you know, we're standing shoulder to shoulder with the winemaker you know, wiping cans, putting them in boxes, getting them palletized. And so we're really hands-on in that process. And I'm working with the winemaker also to learn their story, to pick out themes that we want to highlight on the website and through our blog on the can. Um, you can scan a QR code to read a story about the winemaker and and why they're special, why we chose them. And then I actually work with them on the design of the can too. So I understand like their brand and their brand aesthetic and want the can to nod to their story somehow. So, you know, like our rosé has this wonderful like pink ocean scene on it. And Nicole Walsh, who's the winemaker uh, for that wine from Sarah Winery, she is um, a surfer and, you know, is also um, a mom in Santa Cruz. And she highlights all, you know, grape varieties from like coastal regions. So we really wanted to have this like Santa Cruz surfer scene. And so, yeah, they're pretty and they're um, they're they're Instagrammable. But there's like a layer of meaning behind behind an intentionality behind how we do this. And um, we also have little messages from them under the can because you can stamp each can with like a date and something special about them. And we ask the winemaker, hey, like what kind of little Easter egg do you want to hide here? Um, so for people that, you know, get 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 excited about uh, wanting to just, yeah, know the person that they're supporting, um, I think we're doing something that's time intensive and not super easy to do, but it makes it, it is, it is real. It's a true small batch wines. And when they're gone, they're gone. Like it's never going to be the same year to year. Um, 
we're going to have, you know, yeah, different vintage, a different vineyard, a different growing conditions. And, you know, I really think of each can as this like little time capsule of like a moment and a place and a person and a feeling. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's such a unique thing, especially yet for, um, you know, a consumer brand, I think. One of the reasons why I very first reached out to Maker Wines is because your mission, and I don't, I don't know if we've, if we've emphasized this enough, is that you're not just centering small winemakers. Mm-hmm. You are centering winemakers that are women, that are BIPOC, um, that are marginalized groups of people, that are LGBTQ people, and I want to know uh, two two parts. One, why did you why did you choose to do that? I mean, I think that's an obvious, but I want you to speak to it. And I I, I want to know a little bit about like is is the wine industry predominantly white male oriented or run? And then I also want to know what is the selection process for you guys when you're choosing which winemaker to work with next? Great questions. I, from the very beginning, we, it was important to us to highlight diversity in the wines and in the stories and the people that we decided to work with. And, you know, it's interesting. Wine is a small world. And when you get into, um, you know, winemakers that aren't white men, it's an even smaller world, but it's also this incredibly, yeah, um, collaborative, wonderful community. And, and honestly, like when I, when, when we started too, um, I think I told you that, that the wine industry and consumers were a little less open to cans and, right. um, people that we were looking for people that wanted us to, to switch things up, that wanted to play outside the rules, that were excited to experiment with cans, that cared about sustainability. Um, and that, you know, happened to also align really well with people like people from diverse backgrounds that maybe didn't feel as like entrenched in how the wine industry has always done things. Um, and so there was really like uh, a great fit there from the very beginning. And um to your point, the wine industry has has had a huge problem with diversity. I don't think I've really spoken to the diversity stats in the wine industry yet, but definitely, um, yeah, definitely the wine industry has a big diversity problem. And, you know, that's really become more evident over the past couple of years, especially with Black Lives Matter and, and the Me Too movement. Um, but, you know, definitely... Uh, very low percentage of female winemakers and um, particularly winemakers of color as well. I believe less than 14% of lead winemakers are women and, you know, 1%, 1% to 2% of winemakers identify as BIPOC. And so to be able to really share these winemaker stories and, you know, the the extra, um, you know, uh, and how much more difficult it is for them to to succeed in the industry is it, we're really proud to be able to be a big part of these winemakers' businesses and be part of sharing their stories. What are the steps that you take to choose your next winemaker? Is there like an interview process? Yeah, I'm sure you like, do you have a list yeah. and then you meet them and then you choose based on? Like, yeah, well, like I mentioned, it's a super small world. So right. 
you know, when we when we started, we knew that we wanted to do uh, rosé and two white wines, I believe. And we really wanted to highlight interesting grape varieties from from regions that, you know, customers may not be as familiar with, but that like your cool wine friend would know about. And so, you know, we went looking for, um, you know, rosé or Pinot Noir in like Monterey or Santa Cruz or Anderson Valley, um, maybe lesser known regions than like Anapa Sonoma. And when you get into an EVA or, or you know, which is like a, a wine region like that um, and get to know the players there, it becomes a really small world. It's like you get to learn, um, you know, the, the, the independent producers, what they're good at. And we really just got to know them. We interviewed them. We um, tried the wines, obviously. And there's sort of this magic moment when you're getting excited about a wine and then you learn someone's story. And you can really feel like the love and uh, passion behind what they're doing. Uh, Chris Christensen, who does our sparkling rosé and sparkling Sauv Blanc, was you know, the first winemaker that we like brought on to the Maker Project. And we're now in our fourth vintage with him. Um, and so we've, you know, we've worked with him for four years. And every year we, you know, double the amount of wine that we're doing. So we've become like a meaningful part of his business. Um, and, you know, that like, that like, you know, care and reputation we've built with our winemakers they often refer in other winemakers that they're excited about. And just like how in the corporate world, the best job candidates come from referrals. I think, you know, the best talent comes from referrals. Talented winemakers hang out with other talented winemakers and and bring them in. And I also want to add that, like, Kendra and I aren't the ones selecting all the wines. It's not like we have these uh, amazing palettes. I like to say we have the palettes of our customers. I am not okay. a SOM. <laughs> like, yeah. I did not come from a wine background. Um we have a panel, both of the wine industry and of our customers, that will try new samples that we're excited about. So, um, you know, people we've met along the way, a lot of our winemakers taste samples from new winemakers we're considering. They're almost like this, like, you know, uh, awesome industry judging panel that we've built up. Wine writers that we've gotten to know, wine critics over the years, will actually send them little samples of wine and ask them for their feedback without them knowing whose wine it is. Um, and then, and then, yeah, our customers, like we want to make sure it's wine that's technically perfect, that a Psalm would taste and know, Hey, like this, this is a good wine, but also be a wine that's, um, loved by normal people like us that maybe don't have that wine knowledge and background. It's not so esoteric or so funky that it's, you know, that it's not going to be what a normal, um, sorry, normal, but like a, a typical wine drinker would like. So we do have a pretty rigorous process. And now that we're growing and a little bit more known in the wine industry, we have people, um, you know, reach out all the time that want to work with us. And so we have, you know, obviously like a, a backlog and list of winemakers. And often our customers will write in and say, I have this amazing female winemaker that you guys have to meet. And I think she'd be perfect for maker. Um, and we do talk to every single person that that writes in to get to know them. And it's it's hard to describe, but I think when there's like that mix of something really interesting on the wine side and the storytelling side, you kind of just know. And 
mm-hmm. um, looking for those like little nuggets that will just stick in your brain. Like, you know, with Chris, he was the first person to do a sparkling Sauvignon Blanc in the U.S., um, you know, and he like has this incredible affinity for, for Sauvignon Blanc and hearing his story, um, you just kind of knew like, oh, like that is going to be something people remember and, you know, want to want to share that with people. How do you maintain that purity in a can? As someone who's had snuck a couple cans of wine into a movie theater before um, when I was younger and now having tried Maker myself, I, and I'm not just, you know, blowing smoke up your butt. <laughs> Thank but you. I did really feel like I hadn't tasted a wine like that pure since I had been on a vineyard doing wine tastings, which is something my husband and I love to do. And I, I I wasn't able to taste that with other other canned wines. They were always kind of, I don't have the vocabulary for this, but kind of like heavy, sugary, um, mm-hmm. a little bit of like a weird bite at the end. But these you could tell hadn't, didn't really taste like super processed. Yeah. So how do you maintain that in a canned wine? It's interesting. Our model, so like we have this rotating selection of wines, right? And we have 17 to 20 wines at any one point. Um, and we've been in business now for, for four years. And so I truly think we've canned more wines than anyone, or at least more premium wines than anyone in the world. Um, we're not, most most canned companies, you know, to have like three to four varieties or something like that and we're you know we're highlighting these independent producers and we've so we've really over that the course of a couple of years um, we have this really strict set of guidelines for the wines that we can and how we can them and um you know to make it simple the the best wines do the best in cans when they're minimal intervention wines that you know don't have a lot any additives or um, added sugar or anything like that. Um, really, it's uh, because of the anaerobic environment and the like dynamics of the can. Um, you want to can wine, you know, fresh um, without a lot of or any manipulation. And so that also just leads to great wine. And a lot of, um, you know, larger companies don't know that. And so you end up having issues with the wine. Uh, and also, I think it's partly the education piece you know people we do have the the most you know the higher most expensive canned wine um on the market because it's high quality small production wine and i think it's you know really tough for um you know wine drinkers to justify paying eight dollars for a can because they don't get that it's a third of a bottle Um, right so if you're if if stores are only willing to buy, you know, a $5 can, then there is a limit to the quality of the wine that can be put there. So I think it's a lot about education and helping people understand, you know, the quantity that's in a can because it's very deceptive. It looks it looks smaller than it is. I know. <laughs> I know. Well, that makes a lot. I was listening to um, another podcast weeks and weeks ago with another winemaker who was speaking to the industry of wine in America and how much junk is in the average bottle of wine that you might find on a supermarket shelf. 
junk that like is outlawed in Europe is like not allowed just so that they can maintain certain colors, um, I suppose like shelf life and it takes away so much from the taste of the wine and then obviously also has such a negative impact on the way that you're feeling when you might wake up the next morning or a couple hours after you drank the wine. So it makes a lot of sense now, all the puzzle pieces are coming together, that you said your wines do so well in the cans because they're not overly manipulated. There aren't additives. They're not like worked on so much. So And and I think that's a function of who we work with. I mean, um, working with, you know, independent producers that are only working with like organically farmed grapes that you know, care deeply about sustainability that are natural winemakers like this is their ethos they're not doing it because we told them to it's like they're doing it because they're truly this is what they believe um and you know that's why we think that they're really like the stars and artists of the wine industry and um you know i'll, I'll also add that like yeah like you know yes there are a lot of um mass-produced wines that you know, aren't made this way. Um, but I think there's on the other side of the coin, there's what's, you know, there is like a clean washing or a green washing aspect of the wine industry too, where, um, you know, companies will claim that they have clean wine and, you know, they are sort of implying that other wine isn't clean. And so I think that's something the industry is struggling with too. And that like, it's a buzzword that can also be used by companies that aren't necessarily doing the right things the right way and are really trying to market and and sell a product and so i think um it's this balance of of really wanting to talk about what we do in the right way and also highlighting that a lot of these small producers do it this way too and that they don't always toot their own horns you know let's talk about like the social aspect of why I came up with these questions like last minute for anyone that like is probably a wine drinker like us or at least you like a couple of years ago who drink wine, enjoy wine, but don't really know like the rules of wine. And I don't want to call them rules. I was going to say my number one thought would be break the rules of wine. Right, right. (laughs) But what are some of like if if someone is is a wine drinker like us and wants to have a dinner party. Like what are some of the classic wine pairings that someone can choose for different types of dishes? I I used to host a, a pairing supper club. So I, I, there are like definitely, you know, sort of the more standard rules. Like you want to maybe pick a heavier wine that'll match up to heavier food. And, um, you know, uh, like wanting, to, but I, I think, I think everyone kind of knows the, you know, pair of Chardonnay with like salmon or salads or cheeses, but I, I get really excited about unusual pairings. And so I would definitely encourage people to experiment and try something. I think my, um, a kind of like pairing principle that I, I geek out on is, is sort of this idea of like a golden thread where if you pick a tasting note in a wine that you also have you can you can basically kind of make certain ingredients or flavors in a dish sing from a wine um so you know like if there's this 
really interesting like caramel or honey element on like a, a a meat or a salad or something and you know of a wine that sort of has like a similar vibe like that can really bring out that flavor um i also think like kind of a fun one that's maybe unexpected is like a um you know like a rosé with spicy food or indian food something that will not be overwhelming and really let the spice sing but like you know really pair well with it um and then i think sparkling wines and any sort of fatty food because the bubbles will kind of like cut against that fat and sort of like clear your palate of the the oils to kind of give that like refreshed sort of um you know palate cleansing vibe but again i think like it's i think experimenting and trying different wines with uh, with what you're doing and taking notes is always like the best way to learn that was so much more informative than you let on that it was going to be i love the <laughs> tips and also something that i learned from you guys from our wine tasting the other night that i found super interesting was yeah chill your red wine sometimes yeah yeah and that's really fun in the summer especially with like a lighter style and i think it's also interesting to and again i'm not a psalm so if there's any like well uh if there's any well-trained wine drinkers out there like um you know take it with a grain of salt but i think that you know a lighter style especially in the summer um chill it a little bit and uh also like notice how it changes as it gets warmer in your hand so um as it's as it's colder to warmer you know maybe certain flavors come out more and just kind of see where you like it the best um you might you might like it you know super cold you might like it more at room temp um but that's that's kind of the fun i think of having a chillable wine is you kind of get to see how it changes over the course of the next 20 minutes what are some lesser known wine etiquette things that we might not generally know? And from talking to you, it already sounds like you, we don't want to do wine etiquette, <laughs> wine approachable. But, you know, we see yeah. a lot often people that are trying to be or are very fancy, the the twirl of the wine in the glass or looking looking for the legs. Are those, is is there... Is there value to that? Is that just for show? Are there some wines we want to twirl and some we won't? Yeah. I mean, uh, it's funny because I'll just tell you a couple that come to mind that I learned being a wine noob. <laughs> yeah. That, was, that were interesting. Um, so one thing I learned is that, you know, if you're, if you're at a tasting or something and you're going from a white to a red or you're going to a different wine, you have um, a little bit left in your... Um, uh, glass a lot of people will like pour a little bit of water into the glass and you know to turn it off but apparently that's not what you're supposed to do you're not supposed to like put water in the glass in between wines because um you know that's like that's going to impact your tasting experience and like the it could impact like the next wine instead you're supposed to actually take a teeny bit of that next wine and swirl it and pour that out so that's just something that I, I noticed industry professionals doing that I had no idea until I saw it. So if you want to look like a pro, I guess I would I would do that. Um, <laughs> never, never, you know, if if you're at like a winery or something, never pour yourself wine. Like definitely make sure that you're letting the winery do that for you. Uh, oh, OK. You know, and for our cans, I think people always ask, 
you know, I never drink the wine out of the can. I always pour it into a glass, which is interesting. And maybe, you know, obviously if you're like on a hike or something, you don't need to bring glassware with you, but right, right. And that's part of the fun of the can. But if you're at home, I mean, it's uh, pour in a glass. You're going to get more of the aromatics that way. You're going to you know, be able to see what you're drinking. You're going to just have like an enhanced flavor experience. So sometimes people are surprised by that. I also learned when I was at my own wine tasting, um, when you're before you drink or in between sips, when you smell the wine, they were like going in there. Like (laughs) full nose. Yeah. Full nose in the wine, like whole rim in your eyebrows. And that was the norm. That's what I was instructed to do. That's the thing, right? Well, another one is, you know, so when um, the, the, the restaurant brings out the bottle and presents it to you and pours the little sip. Yes. So, you know, I think some people think that you're you're sipping it to see if you like the wine. <laughs> but really, if they open the bottle, it's not it, the they're really you're really checking to see if they're if there's cork taint. Um, and if the wine is spoiled for some reason, and actually, if you go with a industry professional, they don't even taste it. They just they just smell it because from the smell, you could tell if you could really just look at the cork or smell the cork, and you can tell whether or not the wine has cork taint, which happens to I think like two percent of bottles. Um, so it's I think some people think, oh, I don't like it, I'm gonna send it back. Like that's that's a no no. Like if you bought the bottle, it's just. As long as it's um, not a tainted wine, you're supposed to drink it. <laughs> okay. Oh, thank you for that. Um, on the same grain, what are some like wine words that we might want to use if we want to impress people? Like, what is a tannin? Because really, I see the number one tip I have about wine words is that you can really easily just. Uh, get these this like wheel online that has like descriptors on it and so get a wheel that has you know hundreds of little descriptors on it and then really just like look at the words and you'll be able to just like pull out um words that that you know match what you're thinking i think also the number one tip i have to be a better wine taster weirdly is to um uh like it's really about learning smells and committing them to memory so if you go to um you know like a farmer's market and like literally i used to do this when i was studying for like a a wine test but you go to a farmer's market and you'll like smell the peach really deeply and you'll try to like really commit to memory what peach smells like and like do the same with the herbs and it's like actually the hardest part of describing a wine is like you're tasting it but it's hard to like, con- you know, it's like a tip of your tongue. It's like hard to conjure what that smell or flavor actually is. And if you just sort of slowly get better at increasing your vocabulary of what things smell and taste like, those memories will like come to to you a little bit quicker. So, uh, yeah, I've definitely been like the weirdo, like <laughs> smelling fruits and, and herbs at, at the grocery store. But uh, that's my weird little tip. Well, that's. Oh, that is a great tip because I would be tasting wines and people are like, you can tell there's a very distinct green apple bite at the end. And I'm like, uh, it just kind of tastes like white wine to me. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I think it's it can be hard to like just dis- 
differentiate all because sometimes you're gonna getting a wine that has like three different fruit notes in it and it can be hard to differentiate between those when you're drinking it yeah i think you know um sometimes people like we we talked about like our wines are are you know have no residual sugar i think some people sometimes people get confused by the term dry um because dry doesn't mean uh like a drying sensation like that's actually more of the tannins like you were talking about but um uh dry is is the opposite of sweet so it's like you know a wine that um has no to low residual sugar but i think in general like my you know my recommendation would be not to try to use fancy wine words but i actually love when when people use wine descriptors that are hilarious, you know, I remember reading Chris's site, Chris, one of our winemaker partners for the first time, and he was describing the sparkling Sauvignon Blanc, which we eventually canned. And, you know, I think he's like crisper than a freshly opened bag of potato chips or like <laughs> when you describe fancy way and or sorry, fancy wine in a fun way. I think that's right. that shows confidence and that shows yeah. that you know, like you're not trying to to sound cool and that always makes you cool. <laughs> I 1000% agree. Just make, make it all approachable and then the rest will speak for itself. Um, I do have one, before we go to my five fun questions that I have yeah. at the end, I do have a question that has come up a couple of times on my Instagram because I asked for a poll. Oh, cool. What are your thoughts on those wine tools that remove the sulfates from to prevent to prevent headaches um in your wine do they work do you have any thoughts have you tried i have not people i trust in the wine industry do not think that those are reputable tools (laughs) um i am not going to pretend to be the expert how, uh, however, I will say that I think sulfites in general is a term that's widely misunderstood by normal wine drinkers. Um, a lot of people say I get sulfite headaches. And for the vast majority of people, that is not true. Um, there are more sulfites in Coca-Cola can and French fries than there are in wine. So unless you get headaches from those things, um, like sulfite allergy is like less than, you know, a very small, small percentage, you know, part of a percent of the population. So I think that most most usually uh, people are getting headaches because they're either drinking too much or and they're dehydrated or they are drinking wines that do have higher residual sugar and getting kind of that like sugar uh, headache and hangover. So I would say look for dry wines. Um look for uh drink a little bit less and drink some water and that and there's a lot of wine educators that talk about this a lot but um in general i think yeah um and and like our wines um have you know minimally effective sulfites much much lower threshold than you would find in bottles because of the can format so that's like another plus but um yeah it's it's i think it's a pretty widely misunderstood uh phenomenon Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I I always kind of thought it was the sugar. So I have five fun questions for you. 
someone who doesn't know too much about wine or has been buying like the same apothic red or barefoot wine bottle in the store, which maker wine would you recommend that they start with? I think an awesome wine to start with is our sparklings. I like to call them the white claw killers because <laughs> they're super light, aromatic, refreshing, um, you know, almost like a delightful wine. It's like a nice like wine gateway, I would say, for people that are newer to small production wine. But yeah, sparkling Sauv Blanc. Um, if you said Apothic Red, if they want a red, would definitely start with um, our Pinot Noir. It's our top selling wine. And it's definitely like a wow in a can. Who? Tell me about your favorite high school teacher. Oh, my favorite high school teacher. I would say um, my favorite high school teacher, uh, probably my English teacher. Mrs. Grotenhaus, she like, um, yeah, she, you know, I think made learning fun <laughs> and definitely also like clearly cared and supported her students outside of class. And it's just like, you know, amazing to be able to go to your teachers when, um, you know, for, for personal things and not just for school. Yeah. Yes. Oh, 1,000. As a former high school teacher, 1,000% agree. That makes a huge difference. What is your favorite or do you have a favorite wine tradition or ritual? You know, cracking a can after a long day of work. Um, <laughs> That's good. Yeah, I think I love that sound, you know, when you first hear the, when you first hear that, that like, really satisfying can crack is great um yeah can't beat it what impression do you think you give to an uber driver <laughs> you know it really depends if i'm going to happy hour or coming from it uh, <laughs> i would say 90 percent. I, I want both answers <laughs> i would say you know mostly it's me and my uh, you know, throughout, if I'm, if it's during the day, I'm, you know, in my, in my work world on my phone, like thinking, trying to use that time as efficiently as possible. Um, I have been known to share my whole life story with an Uber driver though, if it's, <laughs> if it's post happy hour. Um, and I also, so I actually used to be a Lyft driver. Um, so you must I, have some funny stories. Yeah, I definitely do. Um, yeah, definitely a ton of funny stories. And so I, I do I do really like to, you know, say hi and ask but because often people are are driving like um as like a part time side hustle to support some other creative endeavor. And so it's kind of fun to learn about that. And uh yeah, I've been I've been known to really, you know, swap life stories with a with an Uber driver for sure. <laughs> really get vulnerable in that back seat yeah definitely and then my last question is if you were to host a cocktail hour in a garden during the summer that's the vibe what three maker wines would you choose to put on the table for your guests Ooh, um garden party for me like i think our new natural wines would be super fun so we have an orange wine which is 
awesome skin contact Vermentino. So it's like it's a it's a white wine grape, but it's got a little more of that like um, heaviness and texture. And obviously it's orange, which is beautiful. <laughs> um, yeah, I would say our uh, Verdello, which is a, a white wine and Portuguese grape from Gianna Wandermust. And it's really like light and floral and I think it would be really fun at a garden party. <clears throat> And then uh, sparkling rosé, because how could you have a garden party without sparkling rosé? <laughs> 1,000% agree. Are there any upcoming product releases or collaborations that we can be looking forward to from Maker? Yeah. Um, well, I'm super excited. Next month is Pride. And um, we, you know, uh, work with three different LGBTQ plus identifying winemakers. Um, we're releasing a special uh rainbow version of our albarino so it's like a rainbow label and um you know we're going to be donating a pro uh, percentage of proceeds of that can and um it's super limited and it's going to be really fun for like taking to your local pride event or pride party right. um and so we're going to be planning some fun events and activations around that can and i'm just really excited to to highlight these winemakers and um, they're, I think, you, you know, you met them on the tasting they're just like incredible women and, and people and, and winemakers. So I'm pumped to, to really, um, be drinking that can all month long. Awesome. Well, Sarah, where can we find you? Where can we find maker wine? Tell me all of the things that we can do to support. Yeah. Um, so makerwine.com is the best place to find us and, um, uh, and, you know, try our wines. If you live in California, Washington, Oregon, you can also find us in independent groceries that we have on our site. Um, and then find us on Instagram at Maker Wine. And um, if you chat with us, you're probably chatting with me or with um, Lexi, our wonderful social media lead. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Oh, I can't wait to share this episode. Thank you so much for yeah. hanging out with me. This is so easy. Thank you so much for joining me this week for this conversation. If you enjoyed this episode or you enjoy the podcast in general, I would love for you to subscribe so you'll never miss out on upcoming episodes featuring other brilliant minds and insightful topics. Also, don't forget to rate and review while you're at it. Your ratings and feedback mean the world to me and help me reach more listeners. So, Miss Dean loves you. Have the best day ever. Same time next week. Bye.